Hey there, and welcome to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a recovering lawyer, world-renowned leadership expert, and lifelong progressive activist and organizer. Reminder that if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can head on over to patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. You can get access to our entire back catalog ad-free there, and also we have some special bonuses for our most favored listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And now here's this week's episode. Hey there, welcome back and happy new year. I'm so excited to welcome all of you back to Living Through It. Um, This week we have a guest who I am so excited to bring to the podcast. We are welcoming Wajahat Ali. Many of you may know him as the best-selling author of the book, Go Back to Where You Came From. It came out around this time last year to huge acclaim from so many people. And it is a humor-filled and also at points tragic book about his experiences as an immigrant, a brown man in America, and his experiences facing down racism and poverty and all sorts of other issues. Um, I am fortunate enough to call him a friend. I'm really glad that he's here today. And I also think you'll find this interview just so inspiring. Uh, We cover so much territory from parenthood to gender roles to how we can fight back against the rising movement of white supremacy in America. So without further ado, we'll get to it. Okay, and welcome back. I'm very excited about our guest today. Our guest today is Wajahat Ali, who I have known from Twitter now for, gosh, I think like five years at least. And we've gone back and forth on book promotion and various things. Uh, Waj is also an (laughs) ex-lawyer in the sense that so many of us are recovering, but more significantly is a big commentator these days on politics and racism and, uh, among other things, fatherhood. So welcome to the Living Through It podcast. I'm so psyched you're here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. From a recovering attorney to another recovering attorney, I'm glad we made it through. I I prefer now an unfrozen caveman lawyer, a simple man. (laughs) I get confused by your big words and your shiny lights, but I'm doing my best. (laughs) I think it takes all of us a while to kind of get back to talking normally. You know, like one of the things that I sort of feel like I had to do at the beginning of the Trump administration was try to explain to people legally what was happening in language that other people could understand. Because, you know, that highfalutin way of talking that they train you into in law school doesn't work very well when you're trying to kind of get people motivated to fight back. Also, the like the really weird incestuous high school vibes you get in law school and the legal environment. So, like you, you what happens is people, if you practice law in any social setting, you gravitate towards the other lawyer, and then there's these like awkward lawyers sitting around speaking legalese. And so, I'm very grateful to be a recovering attorney. I'm happy that my friends who are still in law are are the good ones fighting the good fight. But uh, at least I know how to read a contract, so I guess it was worth it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you can never lose those skills. I mean, every single time I'm called upon to do that, I'm like, oh, right, I remember how to read this clause by clause. Um, but you were so a fancy, you were a fancy schmancy New York lawyer. See, I was like the rainmaker. I was like a Grisham hustler who got rejected from every law firm. And it was like 2008 and I was stuck at home, broke. 
Uh, and my father used to give me, I remember I used to wake up every day and I was like 27 year old man. And I, and I found $5 in my wallet and I'm like, who put $5 in my wallet? And my father's like, beta, no man should be without $5. <laughs> so that was, that was my journey. I graduated right with the 2008 recession. And in a strange way, even though I eventually did law, like, you know, I did solo work and I, and I did work, you know, I help people. I, I don't regret it at all. Like I actually helped people take on the banks um, in a strange way, the failure of not being able to join the corporate law firm, right, and, and get the big job helped me because I was so desperate to get work. And I was just sitting there like just scrambling, trying to figure out what to do with my life. It forced me to finally pursue what I always wanted to do, which was right. Yeah, I, and I, I I feel that so hard because, you know, my my undergraduate degree was in creative writing and then I detoured to go into law and then I came back to it also as you did. But your book came out like a year ago now called Go Back to Where You Came From. Huge, fantastic reviews, right? Like it was all over my local Barnes and Noble. I know we were sending each other photographs when this happened because our books came out within six months of each other. But your book is hilarious and so funny. And so let's just talk about it. What motivated you to write it? Well, so thank you. First of all, thank you for your support. You were very, very kind from the get-go. Uh, you know, this was a book where my agent found me through my writings, and he picked me up like nine years ago. And so every year, he's like, so you got the book watch? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like, I was like 31, and then 32, 33, 34. We had like this, it was like Groundhog's Day. And I remember I was 39 a couple of years ago, like two, three years ago. And uh, I think we were going through the pandemic about my, you know, my daughter's cancer. Uh, mm-hmm. My daughter had stage four cancer right before the pandemic and she needed a full liver transplant. And, you know, she got a full liver transplant and, you know, she's alive. She's well now. She's sick. So going through all of that and about to turn 40, uh, there was just this moment where I, you know, good things take time. Mm-hmm. And I felt like now was the time to tell the story. And so I sat down and I remember when I cranked it out, I cranked out the book in two and a half months. And wow. Yeah. And so people say, how long did the book take to write? I said, two and a half months. I'm like, damn, man, you were fast. Even my my editor was like, wow, that's fast. But I'm like, it took 40 years. Um, and right. it was a book where, where, you know, you've written a book before, like, um, Sometimes the analogy, even though it's perhaps not the, the best analogy, because I'm a man, I'll have no idea how it is to give birth. It's like, you know, you it's your baby that you deliver. And sometimes it takes time. And so this book at this particular moment in America where Donald Trump was still president and it's the rise of Trumpism, I think the threat has not gone, the rise of white supremacy, the fact that fellow Americans for the first time were open to the fact that, oh, these darkies aren't whining and complaining about racism. They're on to something. And women are like, you know what? We might lose our 50-year constitutionally protected right. And you saw people out in the streets. I'm like, aha, I'm. there might be enough people out there receptive to all the stuff that I've been saying my entire life. And if I could connect the dots for folks and let them live uh, in my shoes and see the past 20 years and connect the dots to how we got to Trump, maybe, just maybe, I can push the ball forward, stretch and expand this country. Uh, to include a big tent that includes the rest of us, people you don't have to agree with, right? And and just to give people an idea how it is to love a country that doesn't love us back, how it is to fight for a country that doesn't fight for the rest of us, how it is to be the perpetual, uh, if you will, sidekick and never the hero, what it is for the rest of us. And so when people are out there marching for women's rights or or marching against the murder of George Floyd, Let me also give you a perspective that it isn't just black and white. It's black, white, brown, Asian, refugee, women. And if I could do it in a funny way and in a personal way, 
maybe just maybe a it'll be an entertaining story but b maybe it could convince some folks ah this is why we should fight and everyone has a role to play so so you asked me a simple question but that's kind of what finally inspired me and having lived enough of this thing called life as you know sometimes you just need the mileage i'm like i could tell this story properly and then it came yeah. out in 3 months it's amazing. I mean, it took me a lot longer to write my book, but I, you know, I waited to write a book until I was in my late 40s with a similar story, by the way, about, you know, being chased by an agent. But I think that, you know, one of the things, if I can say this about, I think both our books, because mine is so much about how we overcome the indoctrination of white supremacy and patriarchy and how the things that the voices that we have in our own heads about what's possible for us as any member of a marginalized group, women, black, brown, indigenous people, LGBTQ people, is so uh, taught by the culture we live in and inescapable. And I, I sort of feel like, you know, your book and my book from very different angles are aiming at the same thing, which is to really kind of wake people up to the, the means by which all of those sort of isms are enforced and how we can work to fight back against them. Well, yeah, and, and they're oftentimes so invisible because they're so baked into the system yeah. that uh, especially when you have any privilege, and all of us have some privilege, whether it's class, whether it's gender, whether it's race, um, you're blind to it, right? It's, yeah. It becomes the norm. And when you are a participant in the master narrative, you think this is this is the only narrative. Uh, as they often say, power is blind to its own privilege and its own abuses of that privilege, right? And and then once you, what we're witnessing right now in the United States of America is when that power is slightly threatened or when you ask that power to share uh, to those who have been in power, equality looks like oppression. Uh, and so you look at 2016, it wasn't economic anxiety, it was cultural anxiety, because when you look at all the data and all the studies, it's like, oh, they're taking away my rights. They're replacing me. And so the, the analogy I give people is uh, imagine there's a boardroom. And in their boardroom for the past 200 years, all the board members are white men. And along comes the 19, I don't know, let's say 1989, and there's one white woman. And then 1999, there's one black man. And then 2009, there's an Asian woman. And now 2019, there's a, a Latina. So you still have six white men. And now you got four like people of color and minorities. I wanted to give the perspective of the rest of us. For the rest of us, we're like, hooray, we have a seat. This is amazing. You know, our parents came here for a reason. Look, look, this is awesome. And from the flip side, this isn't my daddy's boardroom. This isn't my granddaddy's boardroom. There used to be 10 of us. Now there's only six. Then there'll be four. And so how do you get people, instead of being reactionary and seeing this as a loss, you can see this as a victory in that, the United States of America, the most diverse multiracial democracy on earth, it can only succeed if it stretches and expands to include the rest of us. It can only succeed if there is an expansive, generous narrative that allows all of us to be its co-protagonists. And I think it's also really interesting that the title of your book is Becoming Heroines, right? I think it's one of those situations where you realize as a woman oh, we're 51% of the population. We've never been the heroes of this story. That's right. That's right. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that has been so key to me about the conversations that I've had with folks about exactly the issue that you're pointing to about how things shift and how things can shift is that um, 
there's a way in which I think a lot of white folks, because, you know, I talk to a lot of white women and I talk to some white men who are relatively open to it. We'll see. Um, you know, one of the things that I think becomes kind of clear in that is that once you start looking at the ways in which systemic power functions, you realize that actually it hurts all of us. It hurts That's some right. of us to greater degrees than others. But the reality of it, and I think about this, you know, like raising my son is that, you know, he's already at the age of nine being put in a box about what his masculinity is supposed to look like and what's tolerable and what's not and how he's supposed to perform masculinity even at this age. And it doesn't allow for the kind of like wide range of expression of ownership of your emotions, of the capacity to be kind and gentle and, you know, all the, the kind of structural things that are in place to make men quote unquote, manly men, you know, alphas in the kind of like far right lingo that we see so often on the internet actually puts, you know, people who are given power in a box as well. And so, you know, part of, I think the understanding here, even for folks of privilege is that we all benefit, right? When the structures change, that we all are given the ability to be more completely ourselves and that the greater access to power that all of us have, the better we all are. Well, yeah, two two things in response to that. First, when it comes, it's better for everyone. The color that still trumps all other colors is the color green. <laughs> and we've seen that investing in this thing called diversity helps business. So at yes. the end of the day, if you like money, uh, inv- invest in diversity, right? You get larger market share. You reach uh, a more globalized uh, market. You get more audience members, right? TV shows and movies which have a more diverse cast. You realize that, you know, they make more money in the long run, right? Anyone in business realize, oh, this is very lucrative. So if I have to be super cynical about it, uh, investing in diversity is good for your bottom line. It's also better for sex. Uh, <laughs> if yeah, I think everyone likes sex. Uh, if you have a more diverse pool, <clears throat> trust me, your sex life is getting better. And then finally, food. Everyone likes food. You know, yes. you could eat meatloaf all the time, but if you have a choice of eating meatloaf and biryani and enchiladas and chow mein made properly, that line to the buffet table will be much more hopping and popular than the meatloaf line, right? And 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 I, I want to just you know I, I'm not I'm trying I'm trying to be facetious, but at the same time being serious, like there is all around wins for this type of diversity, right? But you have to convince people sometimes that this celebration and investment in diversity is not coming at your expense, and this is the southern strategy at play. After, you know, the 1950s, when Brown versus Board of Education ruled that, you know, schools had to be desegregated, that the Republicans have gone all in on, right? All of them have gone in on it, right? It's not just a Goldwater. It was Goldwater. Then Nixon refined it. Reagan did it. Uh, McCain, Romney, Bush, Trump, right? It's kind of the, oh, we will use this racial anger and white rage in particular to divide the white workers from the rest. And even though these workers have a lot more in common, if we actually say, hey, white worker, we're rooting for you, we're against these people who get the welfare and come here free of charge and hop over the border, right? Uh, We're going to make them your enemy and we're going to attack them. Then that's how they win over the votes, this racial resentment. So it's it's a sad thing to see, and I'm sure you've heard of this book, but your listeners should read it by Jonathan Metzl called uh, Dying of Whiteness, where- Yeah, yeah, dying of white. He, you know, Jonathan really, literally went around uh, the South and interviewed folks, and he did the research. And when people say like, "Why are these white workers in particular voting against their own interests?" He goes, "No, no, they're voting for whiteness, and according to his data, they're willing to die for it, even shave off six to nine years off their life for whiteness." Right. And then speaking about 
killing yourself unnecessarily. I, I just want to spend a moment when you talked about men. I have a son, and I was having a conversation with another man about this, about how destructive this toxic masculinity is, as patriarchy is how we learn it, is it doesn't allow men to emote, right? Yes. If you think about it, men are not allowed to emote, women are. You know, sure, a woman might be called shrill or hysterical, but Society allows it. Like if you just want to start crying in the grocery store, people say, oh, she probably had a bad day. If a man loses his job, if a man is depressed, if a man is just sitting there worrying about like how to put food on the table, he is never allowed to cry. And emotion comes from the root word means to move out. Uh, and so what happens when you're not allowed to move out these emotions? They stuck inside, they corrode you. And so now we have men, Elizabeth, in the United States of America, dying prematurely due to loneliness. It's one of the number one killers of men. And somehow we have Andrew Tate and others saying, talk about your emotions is weak. Look at these refugees in Syria. You don't see them emoting. You see them picking themselves up. I'm like, yo, if they need a therapist, trust me. <laughs> like Those people need therapists more than anyone. So I am at this age, I'm 42. My generation and the generation that's older could learn from this new generation because I'll tell you straight up, my wife jokes about this. She goes, you're such a freak of a man. You're like a cyborg. I've never seen you cry. And I'm like, the only time I'll cry is if like a, I'm wrestling a bear and a bear rips <laughs> off my arm and beats me to death with it. Then there's like a potential for crying. Or like, I always joke, like if the angel of death came to men my age and older and said, listen, I'll give you a choice. You can cry once and I'll give you 10 extra years of healthy life. Like good, good years. Or you'll die at the age of 65. I guarantee you 85% of the men will be like, kill us now. And the angel of death is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not in the option. Whoa, whoa, we, I don't want to kill you. Just take us out now. Just take us out. It's it's something that is creating, and it, it leads directly to this MAGA cult, this male insecurity, this rage, this frustration. And instead of finding a way out, which is therapeutic and healing, conmen and grifters come in and say, we'll teach you to be the alpha man will teach you to be the real man. And that's where you get the Musks and the Trumps and the Tates, uh, these insecure men cosplaying as Vikings. Uh, and then they get, you know, every every time they're challenged, you see their weakness revealed. Uh, sorry, I went on a rant, but I felt no, like you, you touched upon something important. It's really important. And I'll just say, like, this is the reason why I have conversations with my son about all this stuff, about like, you know, if you happen to see something on YouTube that says... This is what a real man is, you know, and I, Andrew Tate, we had a conversation about him like a year ago where I was like, if any child in your school ever mentioned his name, I want to know about it right away. Good for you. Because Good for it's, you. It's really impacting the way in which young men and, you know, my son's only nine, but it's not, it's not too early. Right. How young men think about not only their own what's okay for them in terms of who they are, but also how they think about everyone else. And, you know, my biggest concern, of course, raising a white son is the way in which white, young white men are recruited into white supremacy mm. online. And so I sort of feel like we all have this perspective at this point that requires us as parents, if we're aware of it, to inform our kids about how to avoid it and what it looks like and that it's not real. I mean, that really has been one of my my biggest talking points with my kid is like, if anybody ever tells you that, you know, it's okay to be a certain way in relation to a girl or a woman, or that it's okay to be a certain way in relation to a child who's LGBTQ. And I have a non-binary kid. So these conversations are kind of like very omnipresent in our house. Yeah. You need to think about 
the the fact that that's about hate, right? It's not about what makes a good man. And and we've talked about redefining that. So, I mean, it's all, this is all really, really relevant. And I think, you know, one of the things that that I hope to see that I that I keep trying to preserve in my child is this like beautiful open heart that fortunately my son was born with, right? Mm. And I don't want him to be the child or the man who feels like he can't cry, right? I don't want him to be the the young man who feels like it's weak to show emotion. Right. And I do think you're right that the younger generations are leading the way on this um, and hopefully transforming society along with it. Well, well, even like I have a son too, and he's like, you're thankfully we have these two boys who are very sensitive and sweet and generous and open hearted. And my son's like that as well. And it's one of the situations that I'm very grateful that you're aware because most people, and especially if you're listening and you have young kids, especially boys, um, the way the alt-right uh, and white supremacist groups and like these men's right groups is they go after young men right. and they try to recruit young men and they oftentimes give them a community and a sense of belonging online. And there's you know different gateways from which uh, they can attract men. It's not just white boys. It's like, this is a problem yep. that's happening. You know, this is how you be a man. Society is emasculating you. Men can be men. Feminism has gone too far. Gays have gone too far. I've heard this from so many people. I'm like, can you just give me an example of how feminism has gone too far? Come on, man, you know, don't be a cuck. Like men can be men and we're like stuck in our own home and we're neutered in our own home. And yeah, look at Tate. I might not agree with Tate on everything, but he's, he's right about something. And, you know, MMA fetishes, there's nothing wrong with MMA. My kids do MMA. But, you know, there's like there you see a certain pathway of a type of guy who yep. needs to cosplay as this Viking man. And, you know, uh, emotion is weakness. Uh, saying that you're wrong is a weakness. Apologizing is a weakness. Showing tenderness is weakness. Women need to be dominated. Women need to be smashed. You know, women need to be figuratively and literally smashed, right? In order mm -hmm. to, for you to assert and earn your, your masculinity. And and for the rest of us who are old enough and who have the, the scars and the mileage, we're like, oh, you're a broken person. Who harmed you? There, there's a lot of pain there. Uh, there's insecurity. There's something happening in your private life. This is not normal. And so I think it's important for parents to just be a bit aware and, and have these conversations with your kids. Uh, and to make sure that they're aware of the forces that are out there. And then when our kids do have privilege, whether it's race or gender or sexuality, how do you make sure that instead of stomping on that LGBTQ kid, uh, your kid is one of the ones who reaches out and brings that kid to the table? And, and that's in part also, uh, you know, spoiler alert, kind of how I end my book with that message uh, is that's the dream, right? That's that's the hope. Uh, but it's also one of those situations where it's not just for kids, uh, Elizabeth. The problem is with men in general. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we have not been given a language uh, to even know how to emote. And, uh, you know, I, the, the thing that I think you and me of the same generation, I'll, I'll tell you something that the, the young bucks have figured out that it's language that was so foreign to me. Self-care. Yes. We had no idea what the hell self-care was. Did you know what self-care was? Like during the war on terror, self-care? They're like, no, man up, pull yourself up from the bootstraps, go be an activist, self-care. Like this is a brand new phenomenon in the past 10 years. I don't think people realize and take for granted. Our generation has no idea what self-care was. Like we're still like, I guess, can we do self-care? Are we being indulgent? Do we have permission? Is it wrong to go get a neck massage even though my children <laughs> use me as like a playground and my neck is broken? I guess so. And then you feel guilty for getting a neck massage. Like, I, I just think when people our age who are listening, this for our generation is also like a brand new, brave new world. 
And we're now leaning into it, but even hesitantly. And we're realizing, I think with the pandemic, oh, we have to survive. We have to survive some tough shit. And it's okay to indulge in self-care because if we want to be fighters in the long run for our family, for our communities, for our democracy, nobody wants to see a broken, angry, bitter person fighting the good fight and martyring themselves at the age of 52. Right. That's right. And I will say also that I think one of the things that I just have talked about a lot, and I'm like very open about this, but I just kind of think everybody should have trauma therapy for free (laughs) because I've done it and I'm doing it. And it's like radically transforming to be able to understand that like the things you've lived through, you can actually heal from. Like you Mm. don't have to carry them around silently. You don't have to bear the burdens of the horrible things that maybe happened to you as a child or a young adult. You can actually like work through them in a way that gets you back to a state of mental health. And I think anybody, you know, I think the pandemic kicked up so much stuff for so many people. And again, your point about men and loneliness, I think is incredibly legitimate. And also so many men who just don't even reach out for help when they're struggling, right? Most, most don't. Most don't. And so I think that that's, you know, that's part of also what needs to shift is the idea that it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to work on your trauma, right? And that actually it may make you a better person. And by the way, it may also like improve your life and your relationships and your ability to be intimate with people, you know? So I think all of that is really, uh, really key. Not maybe it will, but imagine like if you're married to a man like that, who's broken, like your marriage sucks. And imagine if you're like, that's your father. Uh, yeah. You're, you know, like, would you not want to have a dad who's open and playful and happy, like the energy in the house, right? You're not just messing up yourself, you're messing up a marriage and you're then traumatizing your children right. who will grow up with a role model of a broken man. Right, exactly. Or a broken mother. I mean, again, same story. I think it, it goes both ways on that front. It's like, you know, those of us who have experienced really traumatic events, whether they're they're as a result, by the way, of, you know, patriarchy and white supremacy and and, you know, everything else, or whether they're also intimate events that are informed by those systems, right? I think all of it is, uh, we, we're all better off when we when we engage in the things that are required to heal us. So, so really good. Okay, so I have a, a couple more questions. We're oh, yeah, yeah, by the way, Elizabeth had like a whole outline, and we just like freestyled <laughs> this entire conversation. So my bad. It's all good. No, no, no. I'm like, I'm, I'm excited, because it's, it, we've already covered a lot of this stuff that I wanted to cover anyway, but I want to talk about humor because, you know, one of the things that Anat Shankar Osorio said on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, when we had her on, she's fantastic. I mean, she's just like a genius on top of everything else, but we were talking about messaging strategies for progressives and messaging strategies, particularly related to how we talk about fascism. And one of the things that she pointed out was that, um, the strategies that have worked in countries that have defeated fascist dictatorships involve both the sort of collective recognition of what's underway, but yeah. also critically involve mockery That's right. of the fascists because it undercuts the kind of like straw man philosophy that they're trying to put out there. And if they can be um, seen through a public lens as being weak or funny or ridiculous, that actually impacts the cultural movement against fascism. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is that uh, you're hilarious, um, just as as a means of saying it, Um, and your book is as well. And it seems to me that one of the things that is really a skill set that not all of us have that you do is the ability to put um, some of the most serious points that I think we need recognition of about where we are 
in 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 a place of humor that allows us to laugh, but that simultaneously makes the point. So tell me a little bit how it informs who you are, what you do and what you write about. Yeah. So, you know, you can either laugh or cry. And as we already mentioned, I'm a cyborg, according to my wife, who doesn't <laughs> cry. Uh, and, you know, when you grow up a fat kid, and that's my baby in the background, but if you grow up a fat kid in the 80s, like I did, when there was no Lizzo or Dove soap commercials or body positivity images, right? Every day was World War Three. And mm. I'm about to trigger some of your audience members. I have to wear husky pants. And there's, someone got triggered right now. There's probably a tear coming down someone's face like, no. Oh. Uh, but, you know, you, you just get beat up all the time. And so you develop certain skills. And so I, I didn't develop humor as a reactionary skill, I actually enjoyed entertaining folks. And it's just the kind of the way I looked at life, right? Like life throws you curveballs, and sometimes those balls hit you in the face and you have every right to cry about it, but I kind of enjoy the dark humor of it all. I think it was more cathartic and therapeutic and it just allows me to kind of, you know, it gives me another angle to see this absurd human existence, right? And so I've found out that it's a skill and a tool, like you said, that can be deployed very effectively. Because what they've shown is that if you can make people laugh when they're laughing, they're more open and receptive to otherwise hostile political and cultural ideas. It means they become more open to it. And so they're willing to at least entertain it, right? Because it releases certain endorphins. And if you come at, to the, if you come at them straight, they'll shut down, especially as we get older and we become more cal calcified uh, in, our, in our thinking, right? So that's one strategy. Uh, another way to do it is just... <laughs> When he, when he talks about like disrobing the strong man, you know, there's a reason why Mel Brooks, you know, a, a Jewish man and, and Jews to this day still live with the trauma yes. of the Holocaust. He took on Hitler again and again and again. And when they asked him, like, why are you so obsessed with Hitler? He always has like this fake mustache in his pocket that he takes out in talk shows. And he just like, d like does Hitler impressions. And he goes like, if I can mock him. If I can make him into a buffoon, I can rob him of his power over us, right? You, you you strip away the veneer, the narrative that this is a strong man, you know, Mussolini, uh, Bolsonaro, look at them, these alpha ubermensches. And then you look at him and you're like, oh, Musk is an idiot. Yeah. Trump is a reckless moron. Tate right. is weak. Tate got owned by Greta Thunberg twice right. on Twitter. Right. And in, in front of their legions of men who have this 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 uh, narrative of the golden calf. They're like, oh, the the golden calf is actually made of brass, much like Donald Trump's toilet. And I think it's a way for the collective, the majority, to gain power over the strong man when you show that the emperor has no clothes. So this is the power of humor. And also, when it comes to talking about these hot button issues, these triggering issues, which you and I know, you talk about misogyny and patriarchy. You say the word misogyny, you lose men. You yeah. talk about white privilege, you say the word white privilege, you lose the audience, right? You say white supremacy, it's over. So it's like, how do I Trojan horse some of these lessons or ideas that I want to get across to some allies who might be resistant? Humor is and parody and satire and goofiness and sometimes personal stories is a very effective lubricant or, 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 you know, sweetens the medicine that allows it to go down. And what I've seen is that it's been a boon for me and my career, because if you can talk about very serious things, and I hope when people read the book or listen to me or, or tweet and, you know, yeah, I write about Lego stuff and my kids and sports, but even the humor stuff, like it's all serious stuff. Like, like I'm right. 
you know, I, I, I'm, I want my life to have purpose and meaning. And I, and I hope people read my stuff and realize, oh, he actually, there's weight here and substance here. Uh, it, it allows it to, to lighten it. And someone said this to me in, in a nice review, just send me a message. They're like, gosh, there's so much unrelenting grimness and sadness in your story. But the humor just let me like ride along with you. And and sometimes that's all you have is a sense of humor to, to laugh in the face of a storm that's that's battering you down. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's I think it's such an important coping mechanism also. I mean, I, I tend to go in for gallows humor when when I need it. And it does actually also help because, you know, I think it it's it's a means of showing us how we can carry on. Right. You right. know, one of the things that we've talked about here is the fact that those pockets of joy and the thing about joy is that it's it's it, it's indomitable right mm. it's actually one of the things that scares the white supremacists the most because you can't control joy you can't defeat it right it's something that is so inherent to the human spirit and when it rises from us even in the direst of circumstances it is its own form of revolt so I think that that's maybe a very dramatic way of describing what we're talking about. But I think I think it's so important to every effort to resist domination. Yeah, it's it, and, and, you know, like you said, is because once you give up your joy and once you give up your capacity for joy, you give up your capacity to live and right. you've lost. And this is where the strong man, the bully, the tyrant or just just life wins. Right. When you give yeah. up hope, what's the point? Why should I have joy? What's the point of being happy? Why should I smile? Life is terrible. And that's it. You, you tap out. You tap out. And not only do you tap out and like bring in full circle to the type of, I think, themes that you and I brought about uh, in, in our respective books of storytelling and becoming the hero, you have voluntarily decided that there will be no plot twist. That right. this, story, this story has one ending. It's a nihilistic ending. And you've already put up the end sign before the end has actually shown up. And I think it's one of the situations where you don't want to be kumbaya. Life is hard and people suffer, but you have to find meaning and joy in the suffering somehow or else it becomes intolerable. And, you know, th there's something in, I guess, in my story, and I'm all speaking from experience, by the way, right? It's, if, if you all read the book, great if you don't, but this is stuff that I've, like, I've lived through. You know, the, this, these moments where, you know, both my parents were in jail, we were completely broke had no money, just under so much pressure. And like, if you ask me to imagine like a way out, I just couldn't. Like, I'm like, I just don't know how I can get out of here. I got to take care of two grandmothers. Um, you know, my credit shot to hell. I have to, you know, I got to like declare bankruptcy. My parents are like, what's going to happen? And then at the end, for whatever reason, whether it's fate, exhaustion, delusion, uh, investing in hope, whatever. Uh, I'm like, yeah, I'll just, maybe one more day. And, you know, maybe the page will turn and maybe there'll be a plot twist and bring another story. Or maybe it won't bring a plot twist, but at least, it, at least I haven't reached the end yet. So let me just keep writing right. this story. And then what happens is plot twists happen. And you're like, oh, I got a little bit of help. Oh, I'm alive. Oh, there's a woman who's willing to believe in me and love in me, like love me and like invest in me. Oh, my parents got out. Oh, someone published an article. You know what I'm saying? It's one of yeah. the situations where sometimes you just have to keep going and this is where joy and happiness is so important because in order to keep going you need the joy and the hope to be the fuel when there's nothing else left yeah 
It's a, a friend of mine refers to it as the love and trust spigot that you basically mm. have to turn on the spigot that says, okay, I'm going to invest in the fact that I believe that love is possible and I trust that things can change. And those two things together in the focus of where we find ourselves, you know, at the darkest moments of our lives or, or the darkest moments of our democracy, I think are also really key strategies to our own survival. Um, well, let's talk for just a second about uh, fatherhood because, you know, we've talked about your kids already. Obviously, your little girl has been through a lot. Twitter mm. found you a donor when she yeah. was diagnosed with stage four cancer, which is an incredible story in and of itself. Mm. But I know that um, that fatherhood informs so much of what you do and talk about, whether it's like, you know, dad jokes or anything else. But Dad um, jokes sure- are obligatory. <laughs> yes. I'm curious about how it informs your work. Because, you know, I think, I know for me, well, we have a question we ask everybody here on the podcast, and I might as well ask you it now, because I think I know the answer. But the first question we always ask everybody is what keeps you going? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'll, I'm interested in the answer to that. I suspect it has something to do with your kids. But why don't I just ask you it? I'll let you answer it. <laughs> uh, uh, you have assumed correctly. Uh, yeah, you know, look, I'm at this age, in my 40s, uh, married, uh, you know, we celebrated our 10th marriage anniversary recently. We have three kids. Uh, my son, Ibrahim Nuseba, the cancer survivor who's now six, thankfully cancer-free, and our pandemic baby Khadija, right? And I think once you get to my age, and some people get to my age, especially when you've had near-death experiences like I've had, and you always feel like you got extra time, like God, fate, whatever you believe in, like gave you the one up, right? When we used to play video games, you used to find the one up. You're like, ah, I got more time. Like I feel it. I got, I got lucky. I got more time yeah. in life. Uh, and then you think, okay, well, at this age in particular, where I'm at, uh, they sometimes call it the midlife crisis. And I think the reason why they call it the midlife crisis is uh, <clears throat> people of my age, my friends, we're going to a lot more funerals, like mm-hmm. week after week. Yeah, uh, grandparents. That entire generation is almost gone, but now our parents are going. Yeah. And as we're losing our elders, our parents, our teachers, my teachers are dying. Um, we also see birth. And you're like, oh, babies. So you're, you're being hit with both birth and death on mm-hmm. a weekly basis. And you're mm-hmm. right there in between. And you're like, oh, I actually have more years behind me than ahead of me. Huh. And then my daughter looks at me yesterday and she goes, why do you have white hair on your chest? I'm like, I have gray hair. She goes, are you old? I'm like, I think I am. Uh, <laughs> then my baby daughter said that to me yesterday. She goes, Baba, you have gray hair everywhere. Gray, white, white, white. Yeah, like, I'm like, Mama doesn't have white. I'm like, Mama's young and cool and hip. Uh, your Baba's an <laughs> old man. And so I, I, I preface all of this to say is that you, you can't help but start thinking about time and, and, and mortality and, you know, purpose. Um, and I guess some people have a crisis, but then it's also an opportunity, right? Like I could sit there and freak out about it. But I could say, okay, I'm very lucky that I've lived this long and I have a family and I don't know how much time I have left, but what do I want to do with the rest of my time? And so what really keeps me going is the central role that I occupy, which is father. Uh, if someone asks me, what's your job? I'm like, I'm a dad. Yeah. And, and my thing is the, my kids didn't have a choice. You know, my wife and I chose to have kids, so I don't hold it against them, but you know, as a father with the responsibility uh, uh, of providing for three kids and a family, and, and as a person who brought these people into life, I think what keeps me going 
is to make sure that I can do what I can with the, the limited skills and talent and time I have to make this world, this country better for them. And not just them, yeah. but their generation, right? And so I've said this before, but, but I have an answer to this because I think about this. I think, okay, is my job to be a janitor? Do I have enough time just to clean up the crap? Maybe that's my job. Or am I Hodor from Game of Thrones? Uh, and for those of you who don't see Hodor, Hodor is this giant whose only purpose in life is to use his massive body to literally block the door and give his friends enough time to escape and the demons kill and destroy his body and his friends escape. So I'm like, hmm, is my generation Hodor? Is it the janitor? But when I get really hopeful, Elizabeth, and when I think, you know, maybe let me be ambitious, maybe, you know, we could be the gardener and you can plant the seed. And maybe if we're really lucky, we'll live long enough to enjoy the shade and the fruit. And there's a beautiful saying in Islam that says, even if you see the day of judgment coming around the corner, plant a seed. Jews have a very similar sentiment as well. And, th and there's another saying that says that, uh, have faith in God, but tie your camel first. Another saying of yeah. that is, have faith in God and tie your camel, which means you do everything you can within your power. Right. And then you leave it to God, right? It's, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's not one of those things where I have faith in God, inshallah. Like, how will everything get better? Inshallah. Like, which means, hey, God will take care of it. Like, no, no, you do what you can. That's your job. And then you right. leave it to God also. So you asked me a simple question. I gave you this, this long, hopefully perfect. not boring, droning, philosophical answer. But that, that's that's where I'm at. It's perfect. And, you know, I, I it's funny because I, I have talked so much about the importance of, like, swimming with the current of life. This is one of the things that I got from, like, years and years and years of yoga and Hindu philosophy mm. and all these studies that I did with kind of, like, divinity professors and the like. It's, you know, it's the idea that, yes, there's a current that will carry you, but you also have the obligation to swim with the current. Like, sometimes right. you have to float, but if you're not swimming with the current and playing your part in it, you don't get where, where we want to go as quickly, right? That's right. Um, and so I, I think I think that all fits together so nicely. Um, all right, second question we have to ask everybody, that we ask everybody here. What are your most pressing concerns about the state of America and or the world right now? Climate change should be a perennial number one. Yes. Uh, so if that is a given, and let's just say that's a given, let's move on to number two. <laughs> it's uh, uh, in America in particular, I'm worried about two things. I mean, actually, I won't lie. I'm worried about multiple things. But yeah, the the normalization of fascism yeah. and authoritarianism. Because, you know, we laugh as, as of this recording. We're laughing. And, and we've earned this laugh. And you should be petty AF, as the kids say, <laughs> uh, uh, about Kevin McCarthy losing, as of this moment, six rounds of voting. And I don't think he's going to get it. But maybe he will. Let's see. Um, and we look at the dysfunction of the Republican Party. But what people are not really paying attention to it's terrifying that these 20 people are members of congress yes <laughs> like yes. you know you know that uh, tpm uh talking points memo had access to mark meadows thousands of texts and you know what should have been huge news but becomes completely forgotten is that they released some of these texts and show that 34 sitting republican congressmen supported mark meadows and donald trump during the violent insurrection right. you know we know that like it was like 11 Many of these 20, this uh, includes these 11 uh, Republicans who preemptively asked Donald Trump for pardons. Totally normal, right? And Ginny Thomas, like the wife of Clarence Thomas, you know, an active participant in the violent insurrection. So the fact that 
these folks are in the people's house. They're not a small minority. They have tremendous weight and influence to the point where they're hijacking their own party right now to demand concessions. Uh, and the fact that the right-wing movement nurtured them, invested in them, created in them, and now the monster's turning on them. It it should, yes, we should laugh, but it should also give you pause. So, so the yes. rise and the normalization of, of fascism, of white supremacy, to the point where Steve Scalise might be the House Speaker, and he has openly said, I'm David Duke without the baggage. And I'm like, so... Yeah. You're da- you're a white supremacist without luggage. Awesome, you know, <laughs> you know, like what are you saying, right? Without the hood, yeah, yeah, without the hood, like what? Oh, so you're you're basically a white supremacist who needs to go to Bed Bath and Beyond and like buy some like stuff. Okay, so <laughs> that is something where not just in the United States of America, but you're seeing the rise of fascism in in India with Hindu yep. fascism in Israel with Netanyahu's new government, right? With these uh, Muslim uh, authoritarians, MBS. In Europe, Maloney in Italy, and you're seeing like the rise of this axis of fascists, right? And they were barely held at bay. So that's yeah. one of those things where people might exhale and say, ah, we got the Senate. There was no red wave. Biden's still president. I'm like, no, no, no. You got to be vigilant. And, and a corollary to that is even if they don't have power, my fear for 2023 is the rise of stochastic terrorism. And let me just define yes. that real quick for your listeners. Stochastic terrorism is when mass media in particular is used to target specific groups and that results in random but statistically probable acts of violence. And lo and behold, each and every single group that the right-wing media has targeted has expressed an increase in violence and intimidation. Teachers, doctors, hospitals, poll workers, law enforcement, uh, politicians, the spouses of politicians, Paul Pelosi. So yeah. we're dealing with this violent movement, which gets coddled and normalized because it's mostly white. And when will this country finally confront white rage? I don't know. But I do see, Elizabeth, like um, the majority's appetite for coddling it has become reduced. Because now that they're coming after our teachers, our doctors, like, they're like, we're tired of this shit. We just need enough white folks and enough people of color to realize like, yo, they're going to come after you. Because right. fascists don't, re- and, and if you don't believe me, Kevin McCarthy negotiated with extremists. What did it get him? He right. wasn't extreme enough. So there's a couple other stuff that always bothers me, but that that's the, you know, climate change, the rise and normalization of fascism, especially by our media institutions. And the final thing I'll say is income inequality. We were getting out of the co- uh, COVID pandemic. By the way, it still exists. Billionaires got more money. Poor people got poorer. How the F did billionaires make billions as people died? And I see the, the the weakness of Musk, the weakness of Trump, the mockery of Kanye. Maybe, maybe there's an opening where the majority is like, you know, these alpha Uber menches that we we glorified as our modern prophets, maybe they're just mediocre. Right. And maybe, maybe they're the beneficiaries of a rigged system. And right. I'm hopeful that that, like, I just hope that there's enough there that people like latch onto it. And and like, you know, they see that the emperor has no clothes. That That's my hope. I'm hopeful. Yeah, I'm hopeful about it too. I mean, I'm seeing even some of that. I, I This is one of the kind of like super silver linings of Musk's acquisition of Twitter is that it's been such an absolute fiasco that I don't think anybody's going to want to get on, for instance, a rocket ship to Mars with a man going forward. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I, I had a conversation with my own parents over the holidays about this where I was like, maybe it's just time that we stop lionizing people 
just for being rich. Exactly. Like, 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 like being rich in it, in it of itself is not something that is, is indicative of you being, oh, I don't know, the president of the United States. Right, right. Or for that matter, the the CEO of the largest social media platform, Public Square, that, you know, has an enormous influence on the survival of democracy around the world. Yeah, right? no, but like, you know what, if I may, real quick, the power of narratives, you know, I give credit where credit's due. Trump's strength, superhero strength, in addition to whiteness and wealth and celebrity, which coddled him and protected him and elevated him above his uh, failed <laughs> mediocrity, yeah. is he created a narrative and sold a narrative of financial success. Yep. The art of the deal, the apprentice, right? And enough people bought into it that they said, ah, this this Midas, he could put his Midas touch on the United States. It's all bullshit. It was all right. bullshit, but that's the right. power of the story. And it shows you how much we worship wealth in this country that we're like, oh, this alleged successful businessman, all bullshit, should be yeah. the president of the United States of America. You know what? Who also might be good? Bloomberg. Musk should run for president. So I think like the more and more these people are exposed and going back to humor, the more they're ridiculed, the more they're taken down a notch. I think enough people are seeing like, oh, these guys aren't alpha men. They're not trailblazers. They're not brilliant. They're just like dumb, insecure men pampered by wealth who just have a lot of privilege and are able to say a lot of stuff and have yes men surrounding them. But once you actually see them in the marketplace, and, and they compete with the rest of us, they get taken down by friggin' Greta Thunberg. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm, I, you know, for all the schadenfreude that goes along with it, honestly, my hope is that the practicality of this, the practical impact of it will be that we can finally get to a place in this country where we, where we understand why it's so important that we tax the super rich. Because the reality is that the acquisition and the increase in wealth that you're pointing to that's happened during the pandemic is to the detriment of all of the rest of us, right? And if we stop lionizing them and pedestaling them and saying, oh, there must be something super special about them that makes them better than everybody else, we might be in a position to talk about how the acquisition of that wealth is actually so damaging mm. to society, you know? And so I, I think there's there's hopefully a, a larger policy lining to that. I, I mean, I hope, I hope. Uh, and, you know, it's it's one of those situations where, especially for young kids, can see that these men should not be emulated. Yeah. They're clowns. It's fascinating. All right, final question. How can our audience best work to change all these issues that we've talked about? And we ask all of our, our guests this question, and the answers are always wildly diverse. So I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are on that. What can we do to push back? Uh, uh so- uh, it's a very good question. First and foremost, I would say, and and I'm not just saying this, uh, you know, to give you this cookie cutter hallmark sentiment is have faith uh, mm-hmm. in something or someone. Because if you can't have hope, if you're too exhausted, then have faith. Uh, yeah. Fight for a value for yourself, for God, for your children, but have faith in something. Yeah. A life without any sense of faith and hope is a life that uh, you'll find that it's very difficult to live, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So find something mm-hmm. that gives you that joy, that allows you hope, that gives you some sort of faith uh, to live another day. I think it's very important. Same thing I would say is everyone has a role to play. And I get this question all the time. Watch, who am I? I'm nobody. I, I don't write for the New York Times or I'm not a columnist like you or I don't get on TV. I'm just like a house husband or a housewife. I'm nobody. And I always tell people, 
I'm a nobody too. I right. love nobodies. Like if we went to a, a party and they gave us like, you know, stickers, my name is nobody. I'm one of you. Um, but I do believe that nature, God, fate, Kismuth has given everyone something. Like every yeah. animal has something. Even the skunk has a yep. smell to keep it alive, right? You you have something uh, that you can give to the universe, right? Some superpower. Um, and what I would ask you to do is that if you have discovered faith or hope, if you're willing to fight for something, if you're willing to discover and invest your superpower and join what I call the multicultural coalition of the willing, the ethnic Avengers, then I would say, make the intention to do something locally. And the, specifically the advice I give is the following. This is the easiest way to do it is first choose to be aware. What's happening in my home? What's happening in my local community? Awareness is a choice, right? To be ignorant is a choice and to be aware is a choice. Let me read some books. Let me talk to people. Let me turn on the news. What is happening around me? So choose awareness. After you have become aware of certain problems in your local community, the second thing is choose to make an intention to do something. Intentions are very powerful. Write it down. Yep. Uh, is very empowering because you could choose to be intentional or you could choose to be heedless. And then the third thing I would say is then you choose to act, right? You have to do something. Otherwise, you're just sitting inside your own mind. Choose to do something. Choose to create a local footprint. And this is where I would say, act locally. The right wing is deliberately unleashing all of its money and its wealth and its organization to take over local school boards. Yeah. Local, national, international, right? Local election boards, local hospital boards, local school boards, local city council. It's a very deliberate, open, naked, transparent plot. They don't have the numbers, but they have the organization, the strategy, and the money. We have the numbers. Anytime we've confronted them with the numbers, even in red states, Anat will tell you this, we have the better story. Yes. We have the numbers. We win. And people say, well, I'm just a housewife. Yes, you are powerful. Like you, this is this is your role if you want to do it, right? And when people say, okay, well, I can't do any of that, then I say, if you're a parent and you're just listening to this at home, your footprint is so magnificent and significant because the way you model your behavior and your words will impact your children and impact future generations. And at the end of the day, we're only responsible for, for our own intentions and actions, right? That's it. So- if you can model a certain type of behavior in your home, you will transform that home in future generations. There's a reason why people all across the world say, if you really want to change a village, invest in women, <laughs> empower yes. women, make them literate, and then the entire community benefits, right? Yeah. Um, I say the same thing all across America is that when moms in particular are the ones who become more woke, you yep. see the family becoming more woke and aware. Right. So right. I know I thank you for letting me go on that. But you know, I hear this so much and so often that I really want to drive the, the point home is that you do not have to be a superhero. You don't have to have a blue check mark. You don't have to be a millionaire. You don't have to be on TV. You just have to care. You have to be aware. You have to be intentional and you have to act. And if you really want to make the biggest difference in your home and in your community. Yeah. Brilliant. I love it. This has been fantastic. I am so grateful. Wajahat Ali, thank you for being here with us. I hope we'll have you back again at some point in the near future as well, because this has been just joyous and inspirational and, and I feel great. <laughs> so thank you for being here. 
Thank you. Thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And we'll be right back. So this one was so, so good. (laughs) I ended this interview just full of joy and thinking about exactly the issues that we discussed about the importance of joy and happiness and the importance, not to be too blunt about it, of faith, of what we believe in and that we believe in a better future and that part of the point of life with all of its ups and downs is to know that it is possible for better times to come. So as you think through where we are in early 2023, the dynamics that we're facing in government and in America and around the world, I want to encourage you to think through what gives you faith. What do you have faith in? And I think Wajahat's question to that effect about having faith in something is a critical learning point for all of us. Indeed, it's not too big a thing to say that having faith is a big part of living through it. Thanks for being here, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. If you want to know more about me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, head on over to GaiaLeadershipProject.com, where you can check out all our in-person and virtual leadership programs for folks who want to create change at work, at home, and in the world. You can also read my essays on politics, law, and change at newsletterwithecm.substack.com. And last, but definitely not least, you can listen to all our episodes of Living Through It ad-free over on Patreon at patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. Thanks for listening and see you next week.